generals gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses Hello and welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every week, starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema. This week is 1907. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Helley. I'm a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I am Glenn Cobell. I am a film editor and filmmaker. Yeah, and uh, as uh, I said uh, just a second ago, uh, we are talking about these classic movies that are pre-copyright and pre-sound, for the most part. Um, so uh, you can watch along on YouTube or uh, on, on, the, on our YouTube version, which you may be watching right now, and you can see our faces. But then as soon as you're done seeing our faces, you'll be watching the movies themselves, because we can do whatever we want with them. Or you can watch them in a playlist that I'll put together, uh, and then I'll have the accompanying music when available. Uh, anyway, what's going on, Glenn? How's it going? It's, you know, it's going. The The year is almost done, and yeah. I'm not really... Everyone's like, oh, this, this shitty year is almost done. I'm like, it's still going to be bad in January. <laughs> it's not going <laughs> to get better immediately. Um, but yeah, in, in general, I'm pretty good. I've um, we were talking about this a little bit. I've reached the point of uh, of the demic where I've become an absinthe drinker. Mm-hmm. Whatever that says about me. Just like 1918, probably. Do you think absinthe was out of vogue really? by 1918, or um, it was illegal in the states by then? So yeah, probably. I think huh. it was illegal in most of Europe by then, also. Wow, bummer. I think, I think by World War One, it was kind of. It had been outlawed. It's probably the cause of World War One. Yeah, that, like, they were all upset because yeah. they couldn't drink absinthe anymore. That guy, that guy who assassinated, like he was all hopped up on absinthe when he assassinated Archduke Ferdinand. <laughs> yeah, all all hopped up on on liquor and sugar. <laughs> yeah, he was on a sugar high. <laughs> I yeah, I, I ate so much sugar, I just assassinated someone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um I anyway. uh yeah. Uh How are I'm you not, doing? I'm fine. I uh I I think I didn't update you on this, but I uh for a second was like, "Oh, is there a COVID situation?" But I got a test and there isn't. So, it's all good, you know. Good to hear. Yeah. I'm glad. Um yeah. and now I can go outside and cough on people again with impunity. <laughs> Mm, eh, maybe not. <laughs> not quite. Uh, anyway, speaking of uh, old things, where we—I sp- don't know. Uh, we like to bring ourselves a little bit of context of uh, the films that we're going to discuss by hearing what's happening in the world at the time. So, Glenn, would you read us the news of 1907? The news of the year 1907. Charles Curtis from the Car Nation becomes the first Native American United States Senator for Kansas. Finland holds the first election in Europe with universal suffrage applied. Nineteen women are elected to their parliament. Hershey Park opens as a playground and nature park with carousels and roller coasters soon to come. 1907 becomes the busiest year in history of emigration through Ellis Island. 1.1 million new Americans arrive. Powdon Feature! The Peking to Paris automobile race commences. 
The winner, Italian Scipione Burgese, after two months of travel. Dublin police issues a notice. The Irish crown jewels have been stolen from under their nose. An international committee of academics select Esperanto to become the universal global language. Will it catch on? Oklahoma joins the Union, our 46th state. In business, unstable banking and copper stock markets create the Knickerbocker Crisis of 1907. Auguste and Louis Lumiere create the Autochrome Lumiere, the first automated process of color photography. Entertainment industry magazine Variety publishes its first film review. Scrap metal dealer Louis B. Mayer opens his first movie theater, the first step of his path to founding Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Thank you, Glenn, for the a news of, update. A lot, of, a lot of movie news this year. Yeah, I'd like to put that on the end, just so it yeah. brings us brings us back in, brings us back in. Um, <sighs> speaking of movies, we do a <laughs> podcast about movies, and you're <laughs> listening to it. George Melies, gotta yeah, gotta start with him as as we typically do. What? So he made this movie, uh, which I guess you know I actually didn't check to see if this is something that was actually being worked on at the time of the tunneling the english channel whether this was just a was it whether this was topical or it was an actual like fantasy that came true i Um, looked into it a little bit it was like an established thing that people wanted to try to do uh uh-huh um since like the early 1800s i think Hmm. um uh but it is pretty crazy that he made this movie 1907 and an actual tunnel under the english channel did not open until 1994 oh wow man boy do i have an incorrect idea of how long the english channel tunnel has existed because i I, something in my brain told me it could have it could have been 1907 (laughs) well yeah i know i I looked it up because i was like is this did he make this movie about it actually opening like was this when it and i just don't know that very much about the tunnel i guess Uh because i didn't realize that that movie the movie about that is sort of topical about it is the first mission impossible, which I think came out in ninety six, where it's like, ooh, uh, the channel. It's like a cool new thing. It's a rough name. I don't know about that name. The channel. Yeah, because it it's a, a little tunnel. gross. It's a tunnel under the channel. Get it? I mean, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, as as uh, our our sci fi maestro is prone to do. 90 years ahead of schedule, he makes a movie called Tunneling the English Channel. Um, and uh, one, of the, one of the greatest things in this movie, in general, is uh, toward the beginning, uh, you see th- there's this really st- strange perspective shot that almost um, almost evokes like a, a like kind of New Yorker cartoon sense of scale or something. <laughs> Uh, is that appropriate? I don't know. Uh, it's it's so you're seeing this kind of metaphorical visual of an agreement between the King of France and the King of England about building an English Channel and well, building a tunnel. The English Channel was there already, right? That's that's correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, building a channel, uh, and so you see the two of them. Uh, it's like probably like. Two thirds of the screen, the, the bottom two thirds of the screen, are a cross section of the Earth and the uh, uh, river or the sea or whatever, 
um, and inside the sea part, you can see a fish moving around, uh, and and you see like kind of uh, a drawn cross section of of the ground itself, and then standing atop the ground on like to not to scale because they're to, to this <laughs> <laughs> yeah not not quite otherwise this would be um not much of a, a of a channel um you see the two ten, the two kings standing tall next to each other um and you see little dirigibles and whatnot like flying around behind them in the in the upper third of the frame and they uh it's it's a really interesting shot there's a lot mm. going on at, at, at the yeah. same time um and so it's very it's very busy it's very rich shot and then they take their hands and they stretch them out and reach all the way across the the english channel uh, yeah, with their mr, mr. Fantastic. fantastic style yeah <laughs> and they shake their hands and then they begin the work yeah it's like um i this shot really stuck out to me also um because it's like it's using effects and it's just kind of using filmmaking very kind of impressionistically, I think, which is yeah. something that we haven't seen that much of. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's definitely people aren't uh, going with such uh, non-literal, non-literal realities being depicted visually these days, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it did happen a bit, but yeah, it, it did seem really unique, like yeah. a painted frame in a way. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's specifically kind of, like, using effects and filmmaking techniques in a way that, like, we've seen a lot of impressionism and kind of surreal imagery mm-hmm. in movies so far, but it's mostly been kind of carryovers from theater and ballet. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so this is sort of, um, I don't know, it, it definitely stuck out in sort of... uh I don't know if it's that innovative necessarily in terms of the, the individual techniques it is using, but it still is like creating sort of telling the story visually through these kind of weird surreal images um, in a cool way. Yeah. Um, and, and to uh, further the cartooniness of it, the way they start the tunnels is with the, or with these giant corkscrews the two kings take out and uh, and they start corkscrewing these novelty corkscrews into the ground and that that begins the uh, yeah the dig I I do like how this this movie basically kind of posits that the reason that they the the leaders of England and France wanted to build a, a tunnel under the English Channel was just so they could kind of hang out more. <laughs> Like we see, we see kind of this kind of like split screen view of each of their homes, where they're like kind of doing the same things. And I think, aren't they like adjacent hotel rooms? I they cross from one to the other apart, I believe. Right at the very end. Hmm. But I, okay. I definitely took it in the beginning to be this sort of like, oh, we're seeing each of their individual sort of residences, and they're mm. like, ah, oh, I want to hang out with my friend, the King of France. Yeah. Because uh, the the first scene is them kind of drinking in like a, it it, it could be a bar, it could be like a hotel lobby, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, you're probably right that it is supposed to be hotel rooms, but I didn't really pick up on that until the very end. Um, maybe it's supposed to be kind of a surprise at that point. 
Yeah, so then they we get some some scenes of like uh supplies being brought down like uh into the tunnels and e- each side digging uh towards each other. Mhm. The king of I think it's the or the president of France uh kind of tries to join in um with the pickaxe and mm-hmm. kind of falls over and makes a bit of a fool of himself. It's kind of a funny dig. I mean, maybe a brave considering the time uh, of just like calling these leaders weak and trying to like they were basically doing it for for optics of trying to like do the final strike on the yeah. on the tunnel. Uh, and then he can't handle the pickaxe, so they give him like a little hammer to do it. You know? <laughs> it is. It is also kind of funny that. Uh, the whole thing is kind of treated as this like absurd notion that they would dig a tunnel under the English Channel, hmm. which thing is is kind of it is probably a little bit of kind of uh, like political satire of like right. oh yeah they're trying to do, dig a tunnel these wacky yeah. monarchs, because <laughs> um, uh, yeah especially as we see what happens after that. Um, they they finally get close enough that they can hear each other through the rock, and then they use explosives to blow up the last little bit, separating the two tunnels. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they kind of throw a party down there in the tunnel, <laughs> <laughs> and e- even the fish from from each country join in, which is fun. We see like cut out uh, animated fishes, fish fishes isn't a word. No, it is. Uh, I think they're they're both valid. Oh, okay. We th- we see the fishes uh sort of in this kind of cross section view. And mm-hmm. the- Is that how you say it? Alcoves? <laughs> <laughs> fishes. <laughs> um throw a big party. And we we kind of see like cele- we see them celebrating in the tunnel and then we kind of see some scenes of celebration in one or both of the countries. Like a parade, yeah, and and I mean, you see the train. You see that they start running a train through, and uh, the train goes from one side to the other, and then they uh, they party on one side, mm-hmm. and then there's a, a subsequent scene which is introduced by a title card. Um, That's which, right. Uh, Melies has started using title cards. Um, uh, he it says uh, "Love Reveil Reve." Awaking, um, which I sure. believe means the the dream, right? Um, mm, and I so, um, and so you see a, a, an error in communication as two trains are going into the tunnel uh, at each other, and they they crash into each other and explode, and then leak the the English Channel down into the tunnel. And it's a disaster. And then you see the two kings in their hotel rooms waking up to this horrible dream of the tunnel disaster. Uh, I guess it's a little unclear if the if the whole digging of the tunnel was supposed to be a dream, or if they just had a dream that it went wrong. Mm. Um, oh, true, yeah. Though actually, you know, 
I'm I'm just looking over the end again, and it looks like there's like an architect who's talking about building this tunnel, and they say, "Nah, get out of here." <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it was a, a dream of the of doom, of premonition mm. of doom of the English tunnel, tunnel. Yeah. So M- Melia is not only uh, somewhat predicted the actual building of the tunnel, but also the 1996. Uh, Sylvester Stallone film Daylight, in which uh, uh, a tunnel under the uh, Hudson River gets flooded. Oh, uh, sure, we'll get to it. <laughs> I don't. I think we probably have more important stuff in 1996 to watch, but maybe we'll watch that one. Sure. Uh, all right. Uh, moving on to some other Meliers. Um, he didn't have a lot of like. This is Tunneling the English Channel is maybe his like biggest movie for yeah. this year. Yeah. Um Or at uh, least not a lot that survived. Who right. Knows? There's the 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 sort of surviving print of this movie is pretty inconsistent. The first kind of half of it is pretty degraded. Um and the same is also pretty true for uh Under the Sea slash 200 miles under the sea or the fisherman's nightmare yeah or according to some sources 20,000 leagues under the sea but i don't know if that was ever actually intended to be the title it's definitely uh getting a little verney up in here yeah um, as as he as Meliers tends to tends to be yeah um i usually see this movie referred to as a like a parody of 20,000 leagues under the sea which I think the title 200 Miles Under the Sea supports. <laughs> um, and yeah, it doesn't follow the plot of Jules, the Jules Verne story at all. No. It's kind of just like a guy goes in a submarine and hijinks ensue. Yeah, I thought this one was a little simple. Um, uh, I Granted, I do, when, when it's a really bad restoration or really bad quality of the print or bad quality on YouTube, it's a little hard to, like, even notice the intricacies of what are going on in the first place. It's hard to engage with it, for sure. Basically, this movie is three minutes of, like, pomp and circumstance of this guy getting into a submarine, (laughs) and then about five minutes of him standing around underwater getting attacked by various things. Uh, Yeah. It is incomplete. So that's... That's true. We're only watching the surviving pieces of it yeah um that's fair uh what uh the movie ends with him waking up out of the dream but it seems that the missing eight or eight to ten minutes of this uh have established that it's a dream in the first place similar to um oh god what was that one from earlier um the uh the chimney sweep Right, yeah. Yeah. This one does have maybe one of my favorite, like, it was all a dream endings, though, because when we've seen him wake up, he's got his head in a bucket full of water, which is why he was dreaming of being underwater. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, originally, the the full version of this, as it originally existed, had uh, Crab Men, which is, I'm upset that I didn't get to see. Yeah, uh, it seemed like... I mean, speaking of crustacean creatures, it seemed like that uh, there was probably um, uh, some some props from older 
underwater scenes that he was able to reuse for this one. Mm -hmm. Um, Toward the beginning of the movie, he does that same pulling away effect, or or I guess pulling away parts of the scenery to imply zooming in effect that he does in Kingdom of the Fairies, with I think some of the same, um, like, uh, translucent uh, seaweed uh, pieces that, yeah. that he pulls pulls down to simulate a camera moving forward. I think the same the same octopus might be in both Kingdom of the Fairies and this. Could be, yeah. Um, yeah, it it it's it's a little frustrating that this movie is so exists in such a kind of degraded state because it looks like it would be super gorgeous otherwise. Yeah, especially in color. Um, yeah. Um, but sadly, the only existing version of it is, is, like, (laughs) borderline unwatchable to the point of, like, how, because of how degraded it is. Yeah. It's funny how, you know, these movies, uh, a lot of them, watching them in color is the true way to watch them. Uh, but because the color process was done by hand... Uh, on top of black and white film stock, and the black and white was also an option, um, the the color itself is almost the equivalent of, you know, that... that w- When you tr- check out a Dragon Ball Z manga from the library and somebody's colored in the pages, you know? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's so simply, specific. It's, it's, uh, it is very specific. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, it's literally just colors pasted over black and white uh keeping the kind of texture and uh um the the texture and the the saturation from from mm-hmm. the original black and white uh but these things had to be made uh to work in black and white or color but yeah. the, the the color is so external from the actual filming of the piece i don't know not even related to this cuz i don't know if it wasn't color but i th- i think this one was um mm. it seems like one of them that would have been yeah uh done in color prints um i think we got we got to talk about the eclipse mhm um this is this one stuck out to me as this is i think easily the horniest melies movie that we have seen you think so I think more so. than more than after the ball, the the, the, um, the one from eighteen ninety six. That's just a woman undressing. <laughs> oh, I mean, well, that's undressing. This is like the sun and the moon doing some stuff, <laughs> and it's Fair a little, it's a little yeah. unclear what exactly is going on. But whatever's going whatever's going on, they they are into it. Yeah, um, it's uh... it's it's the usual sort of like actor faces in in not planets but you know celestial bodies yeah um and these celestial bodies come together in a you know in a in a beautiful uh a beautiful courtship <laughs> uh yeah so you see like on one side when, of the screen when one a... celestial body loves another celestial body a whole bunch <laughs> an eclipse happens <laughs> Uh, we, uh, completely unrelated, Glenn, but I highly recommend that when the eclipse happens in New York, uh, in a few years, the solar eclipse, go see it 
it's one of the coolest things I ever saw. I drove, I drove, I drove like 15 hours to go see the eclipse a couple of years ago in South Carolina or whatever. Oh, damn. Um, and it was so worth it driving one direction all the way and then back again, <laughs> uh, for like two minutes of weird darkness. The yeah. animals all go crazy. Like, like Whoa. as soon as the, as soon as the sun gets covered up, all of the insects started chirping and then all of the animals in the forest nearby started going wild. It was, it was nuts. Holy shit. <laughs> it's a really cool moment. It is something I've always, I've always wanted to experience like an actual solar eclipse. Well, the, uh, the solar eclipse path is going to reach through upstate New York in a couple of years. Yes. Um, and then I can, I can, I don't know, make references to this movie. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, and this also has intertitles in it. Um, yeah. Uh, introducing the various scenes. Uh, you know, he, it's something that he's played with a bit, but I think that intertitles are definitely becoming, with Melies and the industry in general, they're becoming a little more advanced and a little more uh, standard. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the, the standardization uh, is kind of the biggest... It's like they're they're now no longer kind of like a new thing, and it's more. Um, they're not always being used to necessarily the best effect, but um, it is definitely something that is is kind of a, a pretty standard staple at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie kind of continues Melies's, uh I don't know shtick of uh like wizard astronomers or like wizard scientists yeah and there's space this... wizards jedi yeah it there is kind of this whole framing device of like i guess a sort of professor who's teaching students and then they go to look at an eclipse and there's some there's some wacky slapstick hijinks that happens with like the students pranking him um but it, it mostly does kind of seem to be an excuse to have this like kind of risque eclipse scene how would you say so like just because one face passes behind another and they make like suggestive faces when that happens i don't know just like the faces are there it's so like it's very clear that it's supposed to be you know a little like ooh. (laughs) you know it's not i don't think that's me my like modern dirty mind reading into it like i i think it's very intentional and I, I wonder kind of how how it was viewed at the time, like how scandalous it was. It was like, we can't have suns and moons, you know, rolling their eyes at each other. <laughs> well, I mean, they're both they're they're both men, also, right? In the in the faces, one is definitely. I think uh, I don't know if both actors are. Uh huh. One I think is definitely presented as. Uh, feminine, at least hmm. I I felt so. I've seen some some sort of um, references to this film suggesting it it is sort of uh, intentionally homoerotic, which I don't necessarily think is the case. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of anything wrong with that. No, but I mean it, <laughs> it 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 might be that sort of thing that I like with a lot of with a couple of the Elise Guy films where I'm like I can't tell if this is like intentionally homoerotic or if it's just like they could only get actors of the same gender, right? Um, 
but either way, it's it's very. Uh, I don't know. It just it it came across as like, whoa, George, this is different. <laughs> <laughs> hubba hubba. Um, do you have anything else on this, or shall we skip to the cheeses? Um, onto the cheeses. Yeah, this is like a weird. A weird, weird comedy that he yeah. did. <laughs> <laughs> it, it feels very French for whatever reason. Well, because it's about smelly cheese. Yeah, um, <laughs> I know. I got, I got very strong. Like, um, oh, what's the guy's name? The guy who made Amelie. Um, oh, I don't uh, remember his name. Jean-Pierre Junet. Um, and and yeah, he just like he's a guy who makes very very French movies. And this mm-hmm. felt kind of akin to that of just, yeah, it's just, it's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> so the premise is that, uh, it's a side view cross section of a trolley car. Um, and a lady, uh, a cheese seller lady gets on, she's just got tons of cheese on her and she just absolutely stinks up the entire car <laughs> with her cheese. And everybody is just, having a horrible time in this train car with this oblivious lady who's ruining everybody's day. And so uh, the other the people call the cops on her and they have her escorted out of the train for stinkiness. Um, <laughs> and uh, she's brought into the police station and they don't actually take the cheese out of the car. Uh, they just take the lady out of the car. <laughs> right, she leaves the cheeses in there and the cheeses follow her. Yes, the they cheeses come jump up out of the basket, uh, follow her uh, into the police station. <laughs> um, they proceed to kill all of the police yeah. by suffocating them. <laughs> the, the, there's a big piece of brie that jumps on a, cop fa- <laughs> a cop's face and, and, and yeah, he, he only breathes in brie uh, until he dies. Which, and he I mean, falls on the floor... Uh, with cheese in his face. That would kill anyone in minutes. <laughs> seconds, even. Yeah, it was seconds in this case. And then she's obviously some kind of, like, evil cheese witch because she knows that this is going to happen. And she just, like, laughs over all the corpses, collects yeah. her cheeses, and then walks away. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not sure if this, this film is uh, taking a, a, a hard anti-cheese stance or if Melies was just sort of doing a little satire on the fact that sometimes people bring sticky cheese on public transportation. Yeah, this kind of seems like it's built out of uh, that, like, that kind of gripe of someone microwave fish in the work, in the office right. microwave kind of mm-hmm. thing, you know? This movie did make me miss public transit a little bit. Like, in, <laughs> you in, city slicker. In that way of, like, everyone agrees that most public transit is kind of a nightmare, but it's like, it's such a collective experience, experiential nightmare. It's like, no, 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 but it's like, we all we all live in this nightmare together, and that is uh-huh. that is something special that we all share. Not to digress too much from this thing that we have uh, lots of uh, movies to cover in this episode, but um, what's your take on uh, eating on the subway? Um, I I'll do it in a pinch. I think I think. Um, you know, having like a uh, an egg sandwich or a bagel is is pretty. It's fine. You know, I think uh-huh. I think if you're if you if you're in a rush, like grab something quick from a from a bodega and just chow down. 
But the people who have like full, like multiple uh, Tupperware containers and th- things like that, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit much. Okay. Uh, good old New York City. I miss it so much. <laughs> um, my has made a couple other movies this year that weren't that great, so I don't know if we really need to get into them. Yeah. Um, move on. We can move on to another. Um, on like food-based chase film, mm-hmm. uh, the Pumpkin Race. Yep, directed by Louis uh, Fuillad, Fuillad, and Romeo Bossetti. Yeah, we haven't watched anything from these guys. Um, I don't think anyway. Maybe we. Yeah, have. I know Louis Fuliadi. Uh, he is... Fuilad. Uh, I think it's Fuilad. Fuilad. Um, he's uh, he's starting up um, at Gaumont under... Uh, you know, Alice Guy Blanchet is running the film department there, mm-hmm. and there, there are new directors coming up in um, in that company. And he's one of the... He was working with, a, with her on a few movies this year, and uh, um, he, he was... Um, yeah, brought brought into the company under her. I, I don't know if it was just this year or if it was recently, but mm. um, this is a if this is one of his early movies, it's pretty strong. I would yeah. say. Um, my first note on this one is this is a cartoon, which it isn't. It's all live action, but it <laughs> yeah, it, it's very cartoony. Yeah, in its style. Um, I really like this one. Uh, the basic premise is a bunch of pumpkins fall out of a a wagon and roll down a hill um causing people to chase after them but the pumpkins very quickly just decide that they have their own rules of physics (laughs) um and so we see the pumpkins roll uh down a hill up a hill into a house up a chimney across the roof down out of the house into a sewer back up out of the sewer onto the street again and eventually they roll back up the hill like back up a different hill up to the cart they fell out of it's very zany yeah um they have they have a mind of their own like the cheese in a way but um Um, they uh they 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 just cause a bit more havoc because they're big old pumpkins yeah they're big old pumpkins that are shaped more like wheels than pumpkins they're very flat yeah, like a big like t- a tractor tire or something. Yeah. Um and there's there's this great the pumpkins like rolling every which way and like going into houses and like up chimneys and stuff is very funny, but the funniest thing about the movie, I think, the thing that continuously made me laugh out loud was so there's like a whole crowd building chasing after these pumpkins, including I think the original guy who is carrying the pumpkins who's got his donkey or mule with him. And he is mm-hmm. dragging this donkey the entire time. The donkey does not want to... Clearly does not want to move. But he's he, really dragging ass, huh? But he is, <laughs> he's pulling this donkey with him through all of this, including into the house, like, through a window into the house, like, up the chimney, across the roof, down, at, like, off the roof, into the sewer. And so we're seeing, like, pumpkins rolling into these places and like a bunch of people running and then like always bring up the rears this guy and his donkey just dragging it 
like the donkey is like so visibly like does not want to move um and uh it's like it's well paced it's well edited you know it doesn't drag it doesn't like um unlike a lot of chase films yeah uh it's the editing is really good it's really funny um yeah i thought it was great and especially like from you know like you said if this is one of the kind of early films from these two directors then it's really impressive because they're they knocked out of the park with this one yeah uh there was a lot of similarity between this movie and a couple other movies that came out this year. Uh, this whole genre of a gaggle of people following some zany thing mm-hmm. was everywhere. Um, so why don't we just put them all in yeah. one place? <laughs> Might as well. Um, it does feel like a very kind of classical silent comedy premise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Head of production for uh, Gamon, Elise Guy, or yeah. at this at this point in history, we can start calling her Elise Guy Blaché because she got married. Even though we've kind of been calling her that the whole time, yeah, it's true. But, but yeah. she is officially Elise Guy Blaché this year. Yeah. Um. Uh, what was it called? The race for the sausage. Yeah. Which actually, I think this is. Along with the pumpkins just having an extra level of zaniness, I think if you're going to be doing one of these chase movies, you need to have some angle, some unique angle to Mm -hmm. make it worth anything. Um, You need a fun premise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And so this one is, uh, there is a dog who uh, just runs up to a meat shop and steals... (laughs) A, a a big long sausage link, a, a comically um, long piece of sausage. Like yeah, a, a, it's a, like thirty or forty feet long. Yeah, a, a full rope of sausage. Um, and uh, the dog's running off with the sausage, and the the meat guy is grabs onto the other end and is chasing after the dog. And so rather than other chase movies where you see someone running and then you see everyone following this one has this kind of like unique element of this rope in between the chaser Mm -hmm. and the chasee that it's not the chasee specifically causing all of the havoc it's the rope knocking everything over yeah uh which which is a fun twist on Mm -hmm. on a pretty formulaic genre um this one's also paced very well um screen direction is not maintained i have to point out uh there's a lot of you know people running back and forth and not really huh a lot of a lot of consistent screen direction but that's that's i guess i didn't notice it pet peeve i feel like the the briskness of it helped maybe yeah it's it's not really it's not super egregious and i think i do think the pace of it of sort of like they're running this way then they're running that way it doesn't feel it's kind of it kind of feels intentionally disorienting in that way of just like they're running all over. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this one ends with um, a the the dog and the people running past a moving train like a real moving <laughs> train, uh, just squeezing by, and one of the uh, in uh, a, a stunt. I guess there's an empty baby carriage that the train just demolishes as it so as it good. goes by. Yeah. 
uh, and and then the way that it fully ends is that they pass by this like just random hunter, and he's like, "Oh, I see the problem here," and he takes his gun, shoots the sausage link in half, um, uh, or, or at least gives the dog maybe a couple feet of it, and then like the it, the rest is reclaimed by the people who are chasing after the dog, and then as soon as you know, as soon as the dog's free with his own piece of the the, the sausage, everybody picks up the sausage and starts chomping on it that yeah that took me a little by surprise that like oh they they just want to eat this sausage right now <laughs> like yeah it's not entire, like he wants to take it back and no, sell it or something the entire crowd then just starts chowing down the sausage um and uh this uh, aside from chase films this is uh, similar to this this shares a lot with other films in 19, 1907 in that it ends with a uh, great train robbery style mid slash close up. Yeah, uh, of I've been kind of central character. I don't know if this is actually what you're supposed to refer to this sort of ending as, but I've been kind of referring to it to myself as a portrait ending, where it's sort mm. of it ends with a very sort of like portrait style close up or like medium close up of one or two of the main characters, just kind of just kind of there. Yeah, mugging uh, a bit sometimes. Yeah. Um, and this one ends with uh, a good dog eating some sausage. <laughs> the successful dog. Uh, um, not the only movie to end with a dog <laughs> eating some some food. Wait, what was the other one? Uh, the other one is the, um, what is it called? The police one. Oh, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, so the um, the the other the other big... Uh, uh, chase film of this year was The Policeman's Little Run by Ferdinand Zecca. Which, um, I was kind of surprised that this was a, a Ferdinand Zecca movie. It, it did not take him for a a wacky chase movie kind of guy. I guess not. I mean, it seems like he's branching out a bit. Maybe he's Maybe. not so... He's, he's loosened up a little. He's not so serious yeah, there, anymore. There was no, like, big moral crisis in this one. You know, there wasn't like, <laughs> oh, yeah, this dog having stolen some meat is now going to, like, go to prison and reflect on its life. <laughs> um, yeah, no, this is, um, in fact, for for a guy that's so obsessed with criminal justice. We, this, we, don't, uh, we don't see the butcher then, like, destitute because the dog stole all of his meets <laughs> and who then has to live in poverty and, and and we also don't see the the police portrayed as particularly competent either oh no um quite the opposite uh, <laughs> so um it's another movie where a dog steals some meat from a butcher shop this time it's just a regular piece of meat yeah. uh the butcher comes running after him and then he gets a cop involved and then more cops get involved, and then more cops mm. get involved until like, you know, the way these chase films are structured, it's like the 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 one who's being chased runs through the frame, and then either one by one or in a big clump, all of the people chasing enter the frame, and usually the like it just does that over and over again, and as that's happening in each scene, uh, they're causing another problem that adds another person onto the group. Right. Um, I think the 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 sausage one I think does that kind of structure the best, where it's like mm-hmm. each scene that the chase is running through has a different location, has a new K 
character that is being added to the chase and has some sort of yeah. like joke or gag that ends the the shot with. Yeah, a, a new a, a new um, dynamic to the chaos, mm-hmm. I guess. Whereas this one is just sort of like more and more policemen keep getting added to the crowd. Yeah. To the point that it ends up being like forty of them or something, <laughs> yeah. all like chasing after this one dog, and the cops are just like bowling over things and causing all these problems themselves just because they're trying to get this dog. Um, and then all of a sudden, the dog can climb walls. True. <laughs> um, the it's it's a normal it's a normal thing, and then all of a sudden the dog just spider mans up a wall, <laughs> and then all the cops spider man up a wall after him, um, and it it so it's um it's shot in that kind of sixties Batman style, um, well where, not, not exactly sixties Batman yeah, style, I, but I suppose not. It's it's from above. It's it's yeah. it's down from above, and they're on they're on this like drawn. The, or like illustrated building side and they're kind of crawling on the floor and pretending to climb up it yeah uh but like the camera's also tracking uh, is that the right word i don't know it's like it's on like a big like a rig on the ceiling pointing straight down and then moving up the wall along is with it, was it actually moving yeah it was oh wow unless unless yeah, I mean, I guess it was because they were crawling along with it. Right, and the camera yeah. was moving with them. Yeah, which was pretty, which is something that we haven't quite seen before. There was That's that true. Billy Bitzer um, uh, uh, thing, uh, like documentary from a couple of years ago, uh, where he was in like a some auto factory or something mm-hmm. like that, and he had right. a camera on a rail looking down. Uh, it wasn't straight down though; it was kind of this, at this angle. But yeah, yeah, it's a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't in hadn't even thought of that uh and then this has the one problem with that with that scene where they're climbing over the house though is that it does the same mistake that they did and it seems really amateurish for this time actually (laughs) uh the same mistake that happened in the women's rights which is that they yeah uh try and do a reverse shot by just clearing everybody out of the shot and trying to pretend that it's the other side of the building, uh, even though it's literally the exact same shot. Um, yeah. And, which doesn't look good. There's there's um, a word, I don't remember what it is, there's a, there's a term for what I think they're trying to do, but not doing very well, where you, you do use the same set, but you kind of rearrange it to make it look like a different angle. Yeah. Um, but they're not doing it very well, because they're... They're using the same angle and they're not changing the set at all, so it it looks like there's just a weird jump cut and then they're crossing over the roof from the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty egregious mistake, I think, for for someone as accomplished as Ferdinand Seca. Yeah, I was a little disappointed in him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then there are a couple ways that these types of movies can end. It can either they chase all the way to one direction, or the chase reverses itself right. and and goes back to the beginning. And what happens is that they catch the dog, and then it turns out that the dog is really scary. So all of the cops run away, and then they go back through a few of the same locations, and the dog chases them all back into their police station, yeah. and uh, they 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 cower inside, and then it it ends at another portrait of the dog happily eating the meat. Yeah. Which is 
I, I feel like every movie should just end with like just a dog enjoying itself. Uh, there were a couple sort of spooky movies. Uh, here's probably the most famous movie. It's another animal movie, like these two dog movies. Mm. Um, and it's probably the most famous movie from 1907. And it is very spooky. And it's called The Dancing Pig. <laughs> uh, this, uh, this, I couldn't find any, uh, attributed director for this. It, uh, yeah, unknown. So I just wrote an unknown creep. Um, this is this is a movie I feel like some people may have seen clips of. Yeah, uh, on the internet because it has in in recent times kind of become like an internet thing because of how creepy it is. Yeah, it's uh, like it's genuinely one of the strangest things that has been on film so far. Um. It, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, it's it's a, a filmed vaudeville act. Um, yeah, that that and, actually does that helps explain some of the strangeness. I think that it is a vaudeville act. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a giant anthropomorphic pig, uh, in, in like a costume, yeah. a very like a very intricate costume. Yeah, um, it's a good costume. Yeah, I mean, you know. Honestly, I wouldn't have expected some a costume so well made and technically complex to have existed yeah. in 1907. Um uh but it uses that technical complexity to just like creep you out yeah. so much. Um <laughs> uh, You should note this so, is I don't think this is intended as a horror movie. Like this isn't No. intended to be uh, like as unsettling as it is. I guess they just like oh, weren't as familiar with the uncanny valley back then. Maybe I I don't know what they were thinking. Um. So there's the the pig. The pig is like trying to come on to this lady, and she rejects him. Um. And uh, <sighs> then she tears all of the pig's clothes off, and then they dance together. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and you can see the eyes in the pig kind of just like going back and forth in a, in a kind of crazed fashion. Um, there are a lot it's of, a little, there are a lot of details on this pig costume that make it way creepier than it should be. Yeah. One is the, so, one is the eyes. Yeah. And, and, and the way that it ends is another portrait basically mm-hmm. um, where you, it's just demonstrating all of the horrors that you can <laughs> I- elicit from this costume. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's the, there are articulating eyes, uh, 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 there's like a tongue and a snout that can move, um, and it's got really sharp, like, gross-looking teeth on it. Yeah, like needle teeth. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, there's a, a bit where it kind of laughs, I guess, and it's, it's eyes scrunch up, and it's, you know, it's, it's lips kind of peel back to reveal these horrifying needle teeth. (laughs) <laughs> and then it's like big long lizard tongue lolls out and like ugh it's 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 so creepy. Yeah, I encourage anyone to go check this out because it's very strange. It's very short. <laughs> um and it's it's I guess it's interesting in just how weird it is. Yeah. Um ugh, Yeah. It's it's unsettling though. 
I, I do not care for it. It's the stuff of nightmares. It is indeed. Um, there were a couple uh, intentional horror films yeah. that we could talk about. I guess probably the mm-hmm. most famous being uh, The Red Spectre. Ooh. Which is pretty cool. Also, um, the, I mean, other than the pig costume, I would call The Red Spectre the most like technically impressive movie of this year. Um, mm. uh, this is by Maybe. Segundo de Chamon. Um, and uh, I feel like he's kind of taking up the mantle of Melies in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. He's, he's well, very... He has a he has a lot of similar stylistic things that he does. Mm-hmm. Um, you can really feel the uh, the influence of the um, the theatrical fairy genre in his movies. Mm-hmm. Like like Melies of a few years ago, he's really interested in pushing what he can do with special effects. Uh, he's really interested in a lot of macabre and and fantastical theming, um, and. I, I feel like he's just like really his movies are so uh fun to watch because they're just really like inventive and colorful and and zany um uh the the story stuff is not so much there I feel like in a, in the way a lot of Melier's films this one too um it's it's a lot of like justification around a or like framing a lot around a lot of really cool tricks mm-hmm. um but I feel like this brings something else to being a, a simple trick film yeah oh for sure um i think one one just kind of difference that i i i mean i can't really back this up with too much like hard facts it's just kind of a feeling is i i do kind of get a sense that segundo de shimon is kind of pushing more into the i feel like the the hand colorization in his films feels very deliberate in a way that it doesn't always necessarily in Melies movies. Mm-hmm. Um, like he'll have very specific things be colorized and other things not be. Yeah. I mean, Pathé used that stencil coloring so they could be a lot more precise with mm-hmm. their coloring, I think. Um, but I, I also feel like his Segundo de, Segundo de Chamon's films uh, kind of lack a little bit of the, the playfulness, I guess, or the 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 humor of Melies's stuff. I feel like Melies's movies true. have a little bit more kind of cheekiness to them. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Uh, that um, certainly. Um. Well, so in this movie, uh, in a in a way that is similar to Melies, mm. um, it's it's a trick film that has some rather demonic imagery <laughs> um uh the red specter is essentially the devil yeah um or or, or a, a powerful demon of some kind and he's acting kind of like a magician um uh he takes some some ladies and he put th- throws a tarp over them <laughs> and <then laughs> wraps them up in the tarp and then makes them levitate and then when they're levitating in the air uh, swapped out. Obviously, they they catch on fire and then disappear. I I do really like how like I understand why there are all these sort of like magician tricks because it is they are coming from like this kind of theatrical genre. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I, I, I just, I love the concept of, according to all these old French films, the devil's whole thing was really just to do magic tricks. <laughs> like that was his main deal was like, he just, he would like grab people and make them disappear or like turn into animals or like swap around like his whole thing was just like i'm gonna do magic tricks watch out he's like hey guys you mind if i workshop my axe yeah (laughs) (laughs) um and there's some really good stuff like in in some of melies's movies like um there's the one where uh they're uh, or or like gulliver's travels that kind of thing Mm -hmm. he plays a lot with the double exposures um but segundo de chamon is doing some wild stuff with the double exposures oh, yeah. in, in, in ways that um, link link the images in with what is happening on the the main plate in a, in a much more interesting way. Um, so one, one kind of cool thing is that it starts out with a pulled back tableau shot, uh, but then the devil or the red specter walks like right up close to the camera. It keeps focus on him, uh, which... I imagine is impressive is, you know, having him be in focus 25 feet away. And then he gets like five feet away and he's still in focus. Um, but it's still weird to see someone that close to the camera. Cause it doesn't really happen that much. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he walks up to the camera to do some close up magic, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, he, uh, uh, he like takes three bottles um, that, and, and he puts, he puts them on a little table in front of the camera and then he starts pouring black, like sand or something into the bottles. And as he pours, um, the black sand creates a background plate to do the double exposures. And so like, like superimposed little dancer ladies appear inside the bottles and it looks really, really good. Uh, he does one after the other and they kind of fade in as the sand is being poured into the bottles and then the bottles have like a white backing on them and he turns the bottles around and the white kind of sweeps them away uh as as they're hidden by the by the bright white label yeah. on the bottles you can you can kind of still see that the exposure of the like miniature dancing women is is still there but because mm-hmm. it's it's being blocked by the white label it it really does look like he's kind of it creates the effect that they're still in the bottle, but he's just turning the bottle so they're not visible anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it it makes it feel more a part of what you're looking at, yeah. rather than some ghostly thing that's on top of it. It's such a simple trick, and it, it works really well. Um, yeah. Uh, there's another one that he does uh, where he um, has like these three... I don't know how you would describe it. It's like one of those, um, one of those billboards that has like the spinning elements on it. It's like one thing on one side and one thing on the other side. I don't know how to describe this. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, But he's got these like three long kind of plates that are that rotate and they have two halves to them. Um, And on one half is the uh, pathé chicken. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and then he turns them around one at a time. Uh, and as he turns around the right one, um, it reveals like a black, a, a piece of black, you know, color uh, upon which 
an image like the the right third of an image is is superimposed and then he does the middle one and the middle third is added and then the right the left third is added and so he it's more of this stuff of uh taking these um these double exposures and putting them in a physical location in the world that's very concrete and made concrete by um by having it interact physically with something um in, in how it's revealed or or removed, uh, and then he does like some like multiple images showing up on that thing, and he like wipes between them, and he kind of does like a little ooh with the the devil kind of points at it, and then it wipes like as he points, uh, uh, he directs the the wipe from one image to another. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah. The, the this one is definitely sort of like really pushing the limits of what effects can do, and kind of like trying to trying to do new stuff which i i always appreciate um there wasn't really that much of a narrative to this one but what little there is that i could kind of suss out is so there's this red specter or the devil and according to most of the like synopses that i read he's opposed by this there's another sort of magician spirit woman who's sort of messing with him and like trying to you get there's some there's some competition going on, and most of the synopses sort of say that she is like the good spirit, but at the end mm. she like makes him disappear and takes his cloak, sort of like I'm the devil now. <laughs> um, which I I like that story a lot, but that she's like oh no no, no like this guy's that he's the he's you know big red specter on campus. I'm gonna steal his magic cloak, then I'll be the <laughs> devil. Um, and that's how the film ends, which I think that, I think it's a, that's a fun narrative. It's a happy ending. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, there was a, a Walter R. Booth film, uh, the devil drives a train. If we're staying on the, the devil topic. Yeah. We haven't seen anything from him in a while. Um, we saw the, um, the, huh? Motorist. Motorist. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, this kind of reminded me of that a little bit. Yeah. Um, also known as When the Devil Drives. Um, <laughs> um, and <laughs> Yeah, you want to summarize this one? Uh, the devil hijacks a train and drives it around in the ocean and up into the sky and in circles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's... Um, yeah, it's another like devil causing hijinks movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, <laughs> like he he emerges. I don't know what what you call. I, 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 my my five year old self is really like ashamed of me right now. But I don't know. I don't remember what you call that like hole that you put the, the coal the in. coal chamber. The, the is that the coal chute? Okay. The uh, okay. <laughs> the mouth of the train. I don't know. <laughs> he just he just jumps out of the train mouth into the engineer <laughs> uh uh into the engineer cabin and uh he just shoes them away and says, I'm the devil, this is my train now. <laughs> and uh and uh it it does I mean one thing which which is um pretty good is that besides all the effects is that um he's doing this large scale stuff to the train. Uh but it keeps cutting back and forth between a pulled back view and the experience of the people inside the train. Yeah. Um, 
so that you're you're seeing it from multiple contexts. They're seeing the same action from multiple uh, the subjective contexts. Um, yeah, all, but, all the pulled back stuff is all done in, in miniatures. Um, yeah, but it's all very. I don't know if model trains were a thing back then, but like, they're just model trains. Yeah, model trains. <laughs> but you still, it's like, it's still I think a step up from kind of like the cutouts that Meliers uses a lot. Like you get some real depth out of out of these. Yeah, um, I guess there's like I don't there's know. smoke like... and there's water. There's like some real elements. To yeah, it. fire in the sky. Um, they. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I feel like in some ways they look a little dinky because they look like model trains. You know, model trains. Yeah. Oh, for <laughs> sure. Um, but he does some cool stuff with um, uh, uh, double exposures with this mm-hmm. too. Um, so I mean, one of the first things that he does is he like makes the train run off the track into the water, uh, and it goes. You know, you you see the train driving underwater and uh, in miniature, and then it zooms in close, and you can see the people looking out the window and fish in front. Um, <laughs> and uh, but there's another part where he just like takes the train and just starts like making everything weird and spinning it upside <laughs> down and like turning it in circles and twisting it around and. Um, and uh, the way that that's portrayed, you you kind of, I can't tell if it's trying to evoke just like blackness and space in a more abstract way, or if it's trying to be like a, a train tunnel. But it looks like the train's kind of curving up around and starting to drive on the ceiling of the tunnel. Yeah. Um, and then and yeah, um, then it like rockets off into the sky and it starts spinning around really fast, and the devil's face laughs inside of the the fast spinning train it's a yeah that's a great transition though of this this train spinning around in a circle and then that circle kind of fading into like an iris shot of the devil's face laughing yeah um it's it's cool i love how amoral these old movies are (laughs) (laughs) well in 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 these where it's just sort of like mischief and and devils and and like spinning trains some of the amorality of the ones we'll get to shortly, I think, is are, are a little bit less charming. Yeah. <laughs> um, music, music forward was very cool, though. Yeah, it's super cool. It kind of looks like a um, um, it looks like something out of Sesame Street. <laughs> I guess, yeah. It's very colorful and um, and it's like, look at. Look, it's it's people, it's faces on, uh, on musical. I don't yeah. know. Well, it's anyway. Describe it. Is it. <laughs> it's more kind of um, like impressionistic film effects, which is fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's pretty short. I wish it was longer, actually, because it's very fun. Um, it's not really. There's not really a narrative to it. It's just sort of like playing music, and then that music is kind of represented by like physical people dancing yeah um yeah there's like a conductor lady and she's kind of it's it's almost like a trick film in a way um but just super music themed so uh uh they they take out like a musical note bar and they have little people walking along it uh they have music notes that are on a on a staff 
and uh, and then she she has some people playing hypothetically, I guess, playing notes, and then she takes her heads and pops them off, and then throws <laughs> their head onto the onto the staff, and then they their heads become notes, and they start singing their uh, their 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 respective notes. Uh, it's it's a lot of just really fun little um, images. Yeah, I, I wish I could have seen this with whatever. I'm sure this this was paired with music in a very specific mm-hmm. way when it was originally um, shown, um, but I don't know what music that was, so I had to make something mm. up. Um, so yeah, uh, more French people. Elise Gay Blanchet. Did you watch Madame's Cravings? Yeah. Um. I'm not entirely sure what I have to say about this one, but uh, it's very funny, <laughs> I thought. Yeah, I saw some people talking about how, you know, considering it's uh, cinema's first female director, uh, the fact that she's making a uh, a movie that's about pregnancy cravings yeah, um, seems like very... Um, you know who who else at this time would be would be making something like that and so she she's coming at things from a female perspective yeah um which which she was with the consequences of feminism fe- feminism yesterday uh, yesterday, yesterday. <laughs> last yesterday last year, year. <laughs> um, um yeah I, which it's a good she's a good perspective to have yeah i definitely got that from this i was real like none of these other filmmakers would have made this movie like yeah. it's it's so clear this is this one's made by a woman or at least sort of like has a much more female perspective to it um which is sadly still a refreshing thing to see a lot of the times in in movies right um the basic premise of this is a pregnant woman is sort of walking through the park and is just getting lots of cravings from everything she's overcome by cravings from everything she (laughs) sees and shows she uh she steals a child's lollipop uh a, a glass of absinthe from a man uh, a beggar's herring. <laughs> <laughs> These are all labeled with intertitles. Yeah. Um, and uh, a salesman's pipe. And the, the whole time her, presumably her husband, is kind of the one who's getting, like, berated and having to, like, take responsibility for her at <laughs> once once she gets called out from stealing all these things. Um, and uh, it eventually uh, ends up he eventually ends up getting into a fight, um, and they fall into a cabbage patch, and they find a baby in the cabbage patch, because this is an Elise Key Plaché movie. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have those cabbage patch kids. Yeah. Her, her signature. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's very silly, um, but I, I thought the, the comedy works, you know, it's, yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, it's fun. I would I I will say, you know, a while ago I was saying a couple episodes ago I was saying that I was feeling like Aliski Blaché didn't have uh as much of a, a personal style or a distinctive style as some other directors. Um and that's not to uh say anything against her here because I think actually uh, as far as just like confidence of what she's been doing this year and the previous year um, is just a lot of um, really productive experimentation, I think Mm -hmm. Um, with the photo scenes that she was doing last year. um, 
that uh, were some of the earliest practical integrations of sound and 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 film uh and one of the ways that she and i think her 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 form i don't know if she has a distinctive style in a way that you could point to it and say necessarily that's a Guy Boucher movie but i think that some of the work that she did this year is some of the most advanced stuff that i've seen ever uh, and I think she she's doing really good work mm. this year. Um, it's along with the oh go on no go ahead oh well, along with the experimentation. Um, I think that uh, on the barricade was quite impressive. Yeah, really, really impressive. Um, it's funny because when I was when I before I watched that one, I was sort of thinking about yeah like her. I guess her like her directorial style or like the types of films that she was making. And I was just kind of mm. thinking, Oh, she's really kind of settling into these sort of like slightly satirical, like social comedies. Yeah. Like, like true. Madame's cravings. There was another one, La Glue or the glue, um, which is just about a rascal painting stuff with glue and the hijinks that comes of that. Um, yeah. she does love jokes involving glue is one thing. Um, but then she goes and makes On the Barricade, which is, like, a super intense, sobering war movie. Yeah, and not in ways that, I mean, a lot of war movies at this point have felt distant and, uh, um, I don't know, just not impactful. Yeah, Um, they've been mostly just about, like, the spectacle of, like, guns going off and, like, battle scenes and things. Yeah, um... In this one, um, you feel... I mean, I feel like this is one of the first times where I have felt real palpable drama in 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 one of these movies. Yeah. This is only like four minutes long or something like that. Um, but uh, the basic idea is that it's the French Revolution, and there is a kid who... You know, there's active war happening all around, and there's a kid who is uh, sent out to go get milk for his mother um and he's kind of stumbles into a battle scene uh and all the stuff happens around him and there are, there are people who get captured and he gets captured along with these fighters um and they start executing all of them uh and they're about to execute this kid and he's like, wait, wait, I just need to bring this milk to my mom. I promise I'll come back. Like, believe me, I'm a kid. I just need to bring the milk to my mom. And they're like, mm, fine, we trust you. Um, so the kid runs back home, and he bring he brings back the milk. And uh, he basically tells the mom, like, hey, bye, mom. I have to go die because I, like, I promised that I promised I'd go back. <laughs> yeah. Um, I promised I'd go back and, and get shot. So, uh, like, he, he hugs, he tries to hug her goodbye and she tries to keep him there. Uh, but he, uh, you know, he gets away because he feels like he needs to fulfill, he needs to fulfill his promise, even though he was not involved yeah. in the fighting. Uh, he's uh, honor bound. Yeah. He's a boy of his word. Um, and. I should say, along the innovation angle, um, this is all told not with intertitles announcing scenes, but intertitles 
depicting dialogue, which has happened before. Um, but like we're we're watching like kind of conversations happen mm-hmm. in intertitles, which is the way that silent films tend to do it uh, <laughs> in the future. Um, uh, it, it, it feels it it helps you get into the actual emotions of what is happening because you're understanding the words that are being spoken. Yeah. Um, anyway, he goes he goes back to uh the the place where they're executing everyone uh the the commander is like just about ready to execute this kid because he was like eh, i don't know i don't want to do it but yeah kid said he was gonna kid do. said he was gonna come back so, so might as well um so the kid's standing there ready to accept his fate and his mom jumps in front of him as he's about to be shot and uh and pleads with the military people tries to explain the situation uh and she wins them over and they let him go and that's the end uh and yeah like you feel it yeah i did i did you know i was really really impressed with this movie yeah and it's i mean it's not like it's it's well written uh for one of these movies like the you know like the the basic sort of plot of it is is simple but very sort of um just effective at sort of bring up emotion and like it's 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 like you said it's short it's simple but it like it gets it gets the point in there um but i think beyond that also it is like the filmmaking of it is really good yeah um particularly like there's right when he gets sent out for milk and kind of the way he kind of stumbles into this uh like gunfight is we, we we see the the barricade of the title being built and he kind of passes by it and it's this sort of ominous thing of like they're like setting up they're getting ready for a battle and then he's walking in this empty street and all of a sudden around the corner ahead of him we see uh like um soldiers or fighters uh, sort of retreating, and we don't see who they're fighting. We just see them, uh, like a coming from around the corner, and the kid is kind of like, "Oh, what's going on?" Um, and so we we kind of like get the sense that a battle is happening, but it's happening mostly off screen still, like around this yeah. corner, and just yeah. the way that it like builds up the tension of that of like the kid is seeing this stuff sort of like slowly like encroaching into the street that he's walking down is, is really, really cool. Yeah. Uh, very, very, very competent filmmaking. Very, very confident filmmaking. Yeah. All around. Um, Great one. You mentioned the glue. I think it's worth touching on a little <laughs> more. I mean, <laughs> like this is God talk is about that, the glue. Like, maybe, maybe she doesn't have, uh, I mean, I guess what I was trying to get at before is that she doesn't have a distinctive style, but that's because she 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 just goes everywhere, and the thing that she's consistent about is that she does a good job. Yeah, I also think, I mean, in terms of like filmmaking style, like we tend to think about it now, I think not really a lot of these directors have a super distinctive filmmaking style. It's more about what the subject matter is. Like, the mm-hmm. stuff that we've tended to kind of focus on is, like, oh, yeah, Zeka makes these, like, kind of moral dramas about, 
like crime and things. And then like Melies makes his devil and like sci-fi Jules Verne movies. You know, it's like, but in terms of like the actual style of them, in terms of like the visual storytelling, aren't usually that different. Um, it's sort of yeah. I almost feel like that differs much more kind of by country or by company like the that region yeah. the american movies really stick out as like very different from all these european movies yeah um but between like alice Blaché and segundo de chamon and like melies like their individual um i guess like visual storytelling style doesn't tend to differ that much maybe i would say that um uh the the pathé stuff and the Meliers are of a type, and mm-hmm. they're of this like carefully constructed tableau uh, type of visual filmmaking, where Guy Blanchet is more in the realm of the Brits or the Americans, where she will film anything from many different angles. She'll do outside shots. I don't remember if she's done moving cameras, but I mean. Mm. I wouldn't put it past her, but I would not really expect Melies to do that. Yeah. Um, um, Melies is probably definitely, I think one of the people who's the most, the most tied to that, like very locked off, like theatrical style. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. Um, Guy Blaché and a few other people are definitely, uh, branching out a bit more into different, just different camera angles, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if we're if we are talking about um uh uh subject matter, uh she does have a lot of similar subject matter in her movies. And one of the things that comes up a lot is class stuff in her movies. Um uh the glue is not an example of that, even though like she's willing to get silly with the glue. I think it's a really well done like comedy mm-hmm. bit. It feels like a lot of just silent comedy um staples in glue a way. Glue jokes play like through <laughs> any language you know like there yeah. is no language barrier on glue jokes and it's a classic like a scamp messes with people yeah. movie which as we've um, learned is one of the oldest film genres in existence yeah um but something something um that uh was more on, on the class angle was the banknote mm. which i thought was really good too um yeah it's funny, watching this one, I'm like, there's there's definitely a lot of class commentary going on here, but I'm not entirely sure what the movie's necessarily trying to say. Hmm. I mean, uh, that, I mean, I would say that it's probably, it's probably trying to say that it's, 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 um, uh, that when your class is readable visually, um, no matter what who you are and what your actual situation is uh you can be taken for granted mm. um uh the basic idea of it is that there's a there's some rich people who are getting mugged and a hobo who's just kind of wandering by ends up saving them uh they're really appreciative so they give him this big smacking dollar bill uh that has that's uh, seems to be worth a lot of money. Well, isn't it? It's like it's like a check, though, isn't it? It's not like a, it's not like a piece of money. I don't think so much. I don't as know. It's, it's called like, the banknote, so I figured yeah. that it was like a 
a note, like a a, a bill. I def- I I'm not sure. Yeah, I got the sense that it wasn't just like a piece of currency, but a kind of more of a a document representing money. Hmm. Isn't that what a piece of currency I, is? I guess. But I digress. <laughs> um, <laughs> not going to get all cryptocurrency yeah. on you or something. <laughs> um, I guess as as I understand it, right? What was happening is that he has this a like $1,000 bill, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he tries to go places and spend it, but no... but people look at him and don't believe that it's real. And so he's mm. trying to sit down at all these restaurants and and pay with a thousand dollar bill and uh and everyone's like, You're a hobo, get out of here. Like you like like this is fake, clearly. Um and he goes to a couple places, keeps getting rejected, uh, to the point that at one point he the cops are called on him and uh he ends up in the police station the cops don't believe him. Uh, they inspect the, the bill or the, the check or whatever it is. And um, what ends up happening is that he's so desperate to like look respectable and legitimate uh, uh, that he's realizing that the main problem is that he doesn't look the part of somebody who has the money and so no one will let him spend the money. Uh, he sees a guy who is just swimming or bathing in a, <laughs> in a lake uh, looking like away from where his clothes are, and and the guy's got like nice clothes, so the hobo goes score, <laughs> um, and uh, quickly uh, swaps clothes with this guy, uh, uh, steals his clothes, uh, not remembering that he left the big old dollar bill in his hobo mm. clothes. Classic um, mistake. So he. Uh, <laughs> so he he goes back to the swanky club that he got kicked out of with and and he's let in with his uh, nice clothes but then he realizes that he can't pay because <laughs> he left the bill which is a great like kind of it feels like very short film very contemporary short film like everything kind of loops back in mm-hmm. on itself storytelling yeah um so he he go he goes back to the police station again and it turns out that the guy that he stole the clothes from is at the police station and they essentially go no harm no foul and swap clothes back he gets his dollar bill back and the 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 guy gets his clothes back and then uh yeah happy ever happily ever after um the there's a th- there's a a card that says all's well that ends well right yeah <laughs> um i i do like Oh man, what was I thinking of? Um, just the the scenes of of him initially kind of trying to trying to live the high life with this with this new money. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and just the idea that like going to a restaurant and smoking a cigar is both in this movie and I feel like in like contemporary film and TV still like the the height of luxury is like going to a restaurant <laughs> and smoking a cigar like that is the easiest way to visually convey someone is like l- living in luxury <laughs> he's he's made it into the smoking section of the denny's exactly what we all aspire to <laughs> um yeah there, there is definitely like um 
I think you definitely picked up on more of the intricacies of what was happening. But I, I definitely got the sense of that, like, this is a movie about how people are perceived. Yeah, how, like, wealth is kind of perceived. Mm-hmm. And how, yeah, like, he's going around and everyone's just like, get out of here. <laughs> Um, yeah. and it's like no, but he can he can afford this stuff. He has this big thing of money. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's something that um, the Americans. That's the thing. It's like the more fanciful French movies. I don't know if they're really gesturing at any kind of. Uh, they're either gesturing at big moral kind of religious ideas, or they're not really. They're just trying to be fun. Uh, but Guy Blanchet, she's making stuff. That's about stuff sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes the Americans make stuff that's about stuff, but they don't usually do as well. Yeah, um, that is another thing that is does stick out about her filmography. I guess is that um, she does tend to put in a lot of uh, a, a bit more direct kind of social commentary than I think. Yeah, I think a lot of the social commentary we're getting from other people is like stinky cheese is a thing <laughs> don't kill people <laughs> <laughs> murder is bad um alcohol will make you a crazy person um uh i don't know if there's any other Guy Blaché movies you have much to say about we could well on i mean on the subjects that i touched on earlier of her inventiveness with the photo scenes and whatnot. She made a movie called Hierarchy of Love, which is fine, but it's just notable in that it's a wide aspect ratio. I think it might be 166, but I can't tell. Oh, um, interesting. Uh, it's it's a simple mo- movie that's not really that impressive otherwise, but I was just like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I, I don't so she's think very, I She's notice. very experimental mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Uh, trying different film stocks. Um, one thing we kind of just mentioned before was sort of how like uh, intertitles are starting to be used more for actual dialogue rather than just sort of setting up a scene or sort of describing what the scene is going to be and one really interesting use of like on screen dialogue is our our first American film of the episode the college chums directed by edwin s porter and j uh searle dolly yeah yeah i think so j searle dolly um (laughs) which is kind of unremarkable other than one really cool thing yeah um which is a uh a phone conversation that is shown as like floating heads with animated text being like flying between them as they're speaking over the phone. Yeah. With like a city skyline in the background. Too. Yeah. Um, it's like the, uh, it feels to some degree like, um, and since it's silent and there's, there's no actual sync sound and there's no, you know, auditory dialogue um it it reminded me a lot of um very contemporary depictions of of texting in film 
and TV. Oh. Like in, in yeah. like Sherlock or something where like we see we see text on screen as this sort of yeah. like it is usually animated in, in a sort of way. Um and this is not texting, it's a phone conversation over the old timey phone. Um <laughs> But it, I I thought it was just kind of funny how it's like over time it's like looped back now to being on screen text. Instead right. of just dialogue. Though you know what the difference is, is that I think that's a really good comparison, but like one interesting difference is that the uh the the the, the words that are being written out that are that are sp- supposedly spoken over the phone are like these metaphorical things, whereas this the texting is often like meant to be like a, a cutout of a screen mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Um, and the, the metaphorical nature of the text in that conversation means that they can do like funky stuff with it. Yeah. Like, um, uh, one person cutting another person off where literally like their words smash through the other person's words and make them fly out in the other direction, which was really, really neat. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like we, you know, we clown on Edwin S. Porter a lot. I think because most of his movies are pretty terrible, um, as we'll get into very shortly. Uh, but yeah, it's like this one scene is like all of a sudden feels like something out of like Scott Pilgrim or something. It's like this mm. really cool, innovative, like visual depiction of something that we haven't really seen before. Yeah. Um, that would like would be cool in a movie that came out today if it happened. Yes. Like literally. You should steal this. Yeah, I want to steal this. Uh, me too. <laughs> uh, the rest of this movie is not so great. It's kind of... Uh, it reminded me of like a bad 90s comedy. Um, <laughs> right. It's like a guy who's trying to convince his girlfriend that he's not cheating on her. So he gets his college chum to like dress up as a woman. As his sister. It's 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 very dumb. It's like, oh, uh, no, that was my sister. Yeah, and then it's yeah. like... And then like she invites her parents over and like her dad is hitting on the college chum. It's, it's very dumb. Uh, I do not care for the rest of this movie very much. It was typical (laughs) dumb Edwin S. Porter bullshit. Um, (laughs) much like, I don't know what, which of these next two movies do you want to talk about first? Um, cause he made some crazy movies this year and we're going to talk about them. Yeah, I want to group up the two crazy movies, so let's just talk about this one, which is just kind of icky, um, <laughs> is Cohen's Fire Sale. Right. Um, it took me a while to which, really figure out the ickiness of it, and then by the end of it, I was like, ooh boy, there's some ickiness yeah, here. Yeah, Um <laughs> Maybe you can guess what the ickiness is, since the movie's called Cohen's Fire Sale. <laughs> um, uh, well, it is kind of... It starts off, it's like, the movie's kind of two things. Uh, the first half is another one of those chase movies, mm-hmm. um, where uh, uh, there's a Cohen's hat store, and uh, he gets a delivery, and uh, the but before they're able, he gets a delivery of new hats, and before he's able to uh, get them out of the box and put them on the shelves... Uh, a garbage man comes and thinks that the hat, the new delivery is garbage. And so he picks them up 
and they start running after the truck and the truck is dropping brand new nice hats out of it and everybody puts the hats on um and then the the miserly cohen uh uh says no that's my hat and then snatches it away from people and makes them all sad and angry at him and then he's just following the truck snatching his property away from people we are we do finally have a film about the 1900s women's hat craze which was a real thing that i (laughs) that i that i weirdly know a lot about because um i'm trying to write something that is vaguely related to that um but for that, you'll have to <laughs> wait for me to write it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like the first half of it is kind of this this chase scene of like the hats were falling off a truck and like people are trying to steal them and we're seeing like uh, the the store owner, Cohen, chase after them and try to take all his hats back. Um, part of these have kind of like approaching like nice street scenes that Hmm. like there's a moment briefly that it's like oh this is like kind of a cool like just scene of 1900s new york or wherever it was shot yeah and then it and then it continues with this uh chase scene um and then he gets all his hats back and I was a little bit unsure of what exactly is supposed to transpire here. I think he realizes that he's low on money yeah. and decides to burn his shop down for the insurance money. Yeah. Um, and so then... Hence the fire sale. Right. Hence the fire sale. And then the movie becomes uh, a, a firefighter movie, which Porter... For a second. Yeah, which Porter yeah. loves. I, I really feel like... Uh, I'm doing this a lot this episode, like comparing it to like a contemporary thing, but it really reminded me after this and the life of an American fireman, it's starting to feel like Porter Porter is to firefighters as like Michael Bay is to like military aircraft. Like he just loves, he loves <laughs> firefighters so much and just wants to put them in everything. They were the heroes of the day. I guess so. Everything was catching on fire back then. Um, Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> Oof, too soon. Um, but so then uh, he puts a new sign up saying fire sale, you know, might be burnt or more water damaged. Yeah. And then it's the hats is super popular. Again. Yeah. And then uh, and then he's... and then we get another kind of portrait ending of him and his wife. Yeah. Where, I guess where you can yeah, where the anti-Semitism yeah. really comes out strong. <laughs> Yeah, at, at the beginning, I was like, I can't tell if this guy just naturally has a big nose and they hired him for that, or if it's a prosthetic nose. And that ending made me go, "Oh yes, yep. this is a prosthetic big nose." And they're gonna, yeah, and they're gonna, <laughs> they're gonna try to make jokes out of it, and it is not fun, and it is very gross. Um, and I mean, yeah. So this movie is, I mean. The thing is that it's not like directly hateful, but it's indulging in stereotypes, bad stereotypes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, where um, it's because it's, it's, you're not supposed to hate him. You're, but you're just supposed to go look at that Jew. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It's 
that's the thing. Yeah, it's it is like I I hate to excuse racism as like no but it's like they were just trying to be fun and it's like no but that's really that's terrible um (laughs) yeah i it it does not reflect well on on porter who co-directed this with uh mccutcheon who's sort of his big collaborator at this point most of his movies are collaborations with mccutcheon yeah Um, in this year he started doing more with j searle dolly and yeah i think mccutcheon um splits uh pretty soon and porter starts working with dolly right. more afterward so speaking of porter and mccutcheon movies that are really horrifically just misguided i guess i don't even know what to say about this next one <laughs> i think we need to talk about the teddy bears okay you you told me how awful this movie is but i loved it <laughs> i mean it, it is it's crazy it's very crazy. It's, it's wild. But it's like it's it's so much more like dark and but just <laughs> yeah. I hate I hate to, you know, do a lot of swears on here, but it's it's just way more like fucked up than I ever expected it to be. It just it goes to yeah. it goes to places where I'm just like what is happening? Here's the thing. I don't think it's even trying to be. No, like, neither. I, <laughs> I, it, 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 it feels so... I think the intention is so innocent. It's trying to be this be like this fun, like, Goldilocks story. And it ends yeah. up being horrifying and just like, oh my god, what is... What am I looking at? So, I... I wanna, I wanna, I wanna give give the audience the reveal of of what is happening yeah. here. Because if I were to give the, the cliff notes of what this movie is, you might it might ruin this wild twist. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's, it starts as like roughly a Goldilocks movie. Yeah. Um, there are some bears, and that's another theme of this year is um, anthropomorphic uh, people, animal people costumes. In, in really scary animal costumes. Yeah. Because uh, the bears have really sharp teeth and weird beady eyes. Um, At least bears uh, are known for sharp teeth and beady eyes. Yeah, you know? they look like they're just covered in plush. No, it's great. it's know? not great, but at least you know, it's, it at least is consistent with what we think of as bears. Whereas pigs aren't known for their needle teeth and long tongues. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um. So there are anthropomorphic bears, people in bear costumes. Uh, they. Uh, are playing around for a bit. It's a mama bear, a papa bear, and a baby bear. Uh, they leave the house, and then all of a sudden, a Goldilocks appears, as has happens when yeah. bears leave their houses. Um, she is always brown-haired. Yeah. <laughs> Just whenever hibernation season ends, Goldilocks come into the mm-hmm. caves. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the the cycle of yeah. life. Um, <laughs> Uh, except her hair's brown, so I don't understand why they made a a brown-haired person Goldilocks. I mean, Goldilocks, yeah, she, but... she's never name-checked as Goldilocks. It's just, like, a Goldilocks type. Yeah, that's... Actually, I was reading... I was reading a little bit about Goldilocks and the Three Bears after I watched this, because I was, uh, a little shocked at the places that it went. Right, I was I like, was this isn't actually part of the Goldilocks story, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so I guess it's not always a golden locked girl, even though that's like always the way that I heard mm-hmm. the story. Um, and it's not even always, uh, 
a, a bear nuclear family. It's it's um, sometimes three bachelor bears, as Wikipedia <laughs> those, put it. Those bachelor bears. <laughs> I guess actually three bachelor bears living together means something certainly different um, than what they were intending. Um, but anyway, she walks into the house uh, and... It has a sign in the house that the only text in the movie is just a sign in the bear's house that says, God bless our home, which I just feel like is a really funny thing to be in a house for, of bears. It's a funny thing um, to be in a house of bears, and it it also makes the like dark ending way darker, I think. <laughs> oh, we're, we're hyping this up. Um, so... You're like, okay, you know, it's a Goldilocks thing. Uh, she she eats some porridge and is, you know, doesn't like the first two, yeah. uh, and then likes the third one, uh, and then it interrupts the Goldilocks uh, for her to look into a little hole in the wall, and within the hole in the wall are some breakdancing stop motion <laughs> bears. Uh, that's not the twist. Uh, it just takes about like a minute and a half or two minutes to do some like pretty good. Um, stop motion. If that was um, the whole movie, I'd be into it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, th- so she, yeah, she looks in. You kind of see the frame of the the wooden um, the eye of the the or the knot that she's looking through, mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah, they're just doing like acrobatics and stuff. Little little teddy bear looking things. They're not real bears. They're little teddy bears yeah. that are on the other side of this knot. Um, she she tries to get in, but uh, she can't open the wall or the door where, where she's looking through. Um, so she decides to go to bed. There's a bed that's too hard and a bed that's too soft and a bed that's just right. So she sleeps in the just right bed. She also, uh, I think, finds in that bed a, a nice sort of like cuddly teddy bear. Yeah. A, the typical teddy bear that what we think of as one. A stuffed, a stuffed yeah, bear. Yeah, even though... Even though teddy bears are a pretty new concept at this right. time, the, this but... movie is really riding the the recent teddy bear craze, having yeah. just been invented. Yeah, and I mean, apparently they were a craze. This is like making a movie called The Pikachu's um, back in the late nineties. Detective Teddy um, Bear. Oh God. Uh, so you know how it goes. The bears come back. Uh, they the the porridge is. Um, the porridge is missing, and that's strange. But they don't make too much of a note of it. Well, they um, immediately blame the 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 baby bear, or the the young true. bear, yeah, and um, and spank it, which is a little upsetting. Well, they spank the baby bear because um, uh, in the next scene they're trying to like summon the baby bear to bed, and the baby bear doesn't want to go to bed, and it's like running away from the 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 mama bear, and so. She's she the the papa bear comes in grabs him and then they they spank the baby bear and, and uh, maybe, maybe I misread that then because I was I was thinking that they were blaming the missing porridge on the baby bear and it was like I think it's both. he was gone at the same time you were <laughs> um uh so they they head off to bed they put on nightgowns and the bear the papa bear wears glasses. Because uh, they're anthropomorphic, yeah. they're, they're see... Peruvian bears. Uh, so that's I a, pa- that's a that reference. reference. Um, <laughs> uh, they see brownie locks in the bed, and uh, they freak out, and she freaks out 
and they try and attack her. Um, and typically where the story ends is that the bears are mad because Goldilocks is in their bed and ate their food. Uh, and then Goldilocks escapes out the window. But in this movie, the bears give chase. Uh, and they're uh, chasing uh, chasing Goldilocks all the way through the forest. There's a bit of a chase scene all the way through that goes on a, maybe a minute or so. A very sluggish, long. poorly shot chase scene. <laughs> as, as Porter does. Um, although there's one part where they all like slide down a big snow bank, which... Uh, one after another, which is kind of fun. Um, but it's it's a little tense, you know? These bears mean business. They're, they're, yeah. They really they really want to kill her, you know? Um, or, or at least, and, at least you know, uh, I don't know if, I don't know if they're, they've got murder in their eyes, but, you know, they're, 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 yeah. they're unhappy. Yeah. They, they want to, they want to confront her yeah. at least. Um, the chase scene uh, keeps going for a while and then ends as she runs into Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> Is it supposed to actually be Teddy Roosevelt? I want to believe that, yes. That um, makes the movie <laughs> crazier and maybe worse. I don't know. I just... I I don't care if it's... I, I don't want it to be someone who looks like Teddy Roosevelt. I need it to be Teddy right. Roosevelt we'll, 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 that she runs we'll go into. With that. She runs into Teddy Roosevelt. She runs into Teddy Roosevelt. She tells them that she's being chased by bears. So... He's like, I'll save you, little girl. He takes out his gun and shoots the papa bear. And then the mama bear comes running. And he shoots down the mama bear. They 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 fall into the snow and die. And then the baby bear comes afterward. And Goldilocks finally has uh, some, uh, some remorse. So she stops Teddy Roosevelt, President Teddy Roosevelt, from murdering a baby bear which is a reference to the baby bear that he spared right that to, ended to up. the time where he actually did murder a family of bears and spare the child yeah um they weren't anthropomorphic though so it wasn't quite as bad it wasn't quite as sad yeah whatever um and uh <laughs> um it's not really any and, better and yeah they 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 bury the Papa and Mama bears in shallow graves in the in the snow, uh, and then go back to the house, uh, take all their stuff, take all their stuff, uh, sort of like they leash ca- up. capture the the baby bear, yeah, like put a leash on it, yeah, um, yeah, steal the steal the teddy bear from in the the house, yeah, all the all the breakdancing teddy just bears ransack too. it, yeah. And yet, it ends with yeah. it ends with Baby Bear theoritically enslaved. Yeah, happily ever Parents after. Parents murdered, an enslaved, an enslaved orphan. And bear. I mean, it's like <laughs> you know, yeah that that's not how it's intended to be read. It's in you know, it's not like I don't think the implications of this are really something that they thought too much about. They didn't like animals as much back then. Y- yeah, I, and I I don't really think they they gave much thought to the optics of it in any in any way shape or form but good golly what a dark terrible ending it's so wild (laughs) i hated this movie i'm not gonna lie i i loved it it's so (laughs) this might be the first movie that i've watched for this podcast that i legitimately hated 
<laughs> I don't know. I've I've hated some of Edwin S. Porter's earlier movies because they've just been so powerfully boring that I didn't. I wish they'd never existed. Right. This one's, but this, this movie is so wacky. It like like it's so uh, we- weirdly vicious. <laughs> um, I I find it so entertaining that this movie exists, and I was delighted by its absurdly dark twists. <laughs> it is. It does definitely fit into that sort of just like relentlessly mean spirited type of movie. Which which are sometimes really <laughs> enjoyable to watch. I do enjoy movies like that sometimes that are just like kind of comedically mean. Yeah. Um, Why didn't you like this one? Just it's just like oh it's oof. I you know like the the ickiness of Porter I feel like really comes through in this one. Maybe not quite as like directly as some of his other stuff, but it's just like he rewrote the entire ending of the Goldilocks story. To be as horrifying as as possible, and to tie it into current uh, current right. fads. Um, but it's like they go through all this stuff of sort of like humanizing these bears, of like anthropomorphizing them, and like they have this home, and they have like the like you know the God bless our home thing and the thing, and then it 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 then <laughs> treats them as like monsters. Yeah. But the thing is, it doesn't act in the scenes where we see the bears. They're not monsters. They are. There's a whole scene at the beginning of them just sort of like getting ready to go out on their day. Yeah. Um, How could you not love this? This is so ridiculous. You know, it's like it makes a specific point of like humanizing the bears as much as possible. And then yeah. Teddy Roosevelt cold-bloodedly murders them <laughs> in front of their child. And then is like, you belong to me now. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. This is this is like almost exploitation filmmaking, you know? Yeah. No, it This yeah. is <laughs> This is like amoral uh 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 just gritty gross like exploitation <laughs> of it's taking things that you love and making them absurdly dark for no reason. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I mean, a movie that took a thing that people like and made it absurdly dark for no reason that I did enjoy was Edwin S. Porter and J. Cyril Dolly's A Little Girl Who Did Not Believe in Santa Claus. Uh-huh. <laughs> some nice some nice synergy with the uh the time we're recording this. Um just post post Christmas. Yeah. Um this is also like most of Porter's movies very slow and long. You could tune out for a bit. Um, I do like like kind of the, the opening titles of it though, where it's like a little girl. It's like words appear on screen. A oh, little girl, and it's like yeah. you see the girl, and then it's like who did not. It's like a, who did not believe in, and then cut to Santa Claus, and we see Santa Claus. Yeah, with the words. Yeah, like little photos with captions. Yeah, kind and of. then it says, and then it's the little boy who did. And we see we see a picture of him, and we see the little girl and the little boy playing out in the snow, and it's and it's very charming. And then they go inside to the, I guess the little boy's rich country house. Um, and they're playing upstairs, and uh, he decides to read her a book about Santa Claus. 
And you can kind of see through, like, miming. She's like, nope. Don't don't believe in it. No such thing. <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 Santa Claus. Check it out. In the book. And she's like, nope. Not real. Um, and it's sort of implied. We then see, like, she goes home, and her house is this kind of, like, ramshackle house off in the woods where she lives with her grandmother, maybe. Hmm. Um... And the the implication being, she does not believe in Santa Claus because she comes from a poor family and doesn't receive gifts at Christmas, whereas he does because he comes from a rich family, and gets you know Nintendo sixty four. Um, <laughs> I mean, or the implication is that Santa only brings I, things to rich children, which I think actually well, is the implication because Santa appears in this movie, so he is a real, you know, thing in the fiction of the movie. Right. I mean, I think also that, like, if you take it in the in the context of a lot of modern-day Christmas movies, the idea of faith in Santa Claus is, um, is a virtue itself that you're rewarded with. And so, Very much so, yeah. There's, there, there could also be, like, an element of he is rich because he believes in Santa oh, Claus. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Um... Yeah, not because uh, he was born to rich parents, just because he yeah, it's like Santa a Claus. it's like a metaphysical punishment for not believing in Santa Claus, an existential punishment oh for not God. believing in Santa Claus. Um, or, or there's there's also the practical reason that yeah. you said. <laughs> um, I mean, just that little bit of kind of class commentary is at the very least interesting. Mm-hmm. Of like, hey, we're gonna kind of comment on how like, you know, rich privileged children get more out of Christmas yeah. because you know their parents have the means of buying them more things um, I like that so this rich kid's solution to this problem is he's going to ambush Santa when he comes down the chimney mm-hmm. uh, tie him up hold him at gunpoint <laughs> and force him to deliver <laughs> gifts to his to his friend uh, what a sweet kid yeah don't know where I got the gun from but um hey he's a rich kid he's got lots of stuff um this continues the tradition we've seen in other 1900s christmas movies where there isn't really a christmas tree until santa shows up he kind of summons it when he arrives yeah which is weird yeah like we had no idea it wasn't really something that i I didn't think that was part of the lore uh that he will kind of conjure a tree when he when he shows up but uh, that's how it. That's how it happens here. Um, and yeah, the the rich kid kind of like waits in a corner of the room for Santa to come down the chimney and summon the tree and bring out all the gifts, and then pops out, and holds Santa up. It's so crazy. Ugh, it's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, didn't see that coming. You know, I was like, oh, this this took a turn. Um, this escalated quickly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so then he, he, he forces Santa to, to deliver presents to the, to the poor girl. And, uh, and then she, you know, through virtue of getting gifts, she then believes in Santa. (laughs) There's a little girl who's lost her faith in Santa Claus. Now... Put your hands up and give it back to her. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, given... This always bothers me about 
Christmas movies involving Santa in that mm-hmm. they always posit, yeah, that like the belief in Santa is this kind of virtuous thing because in the fiction of all these films, Santa is a real uh, sort of magical creature that exists. Yeah, yeah. Um, however, all the parents don't believe in Santa and are therefore sort of morally uh, backwards or sort of have, have lost their their childhood sense of wonder. Yeah. Where do the parents think the presents are coming from is what I want to know. You're, you're just talking about in Christmas movies in general. Yeah. yeah. You know, when Santa shows up um, and conjures a tree or brings presents, like when kids are getting, you know, their, their, you know, their new game of, of risk in the morning <laughs> okay. that they, that the parent did not buy. Where do they mm-hmm. think it came from? Do you think just yeah. some some random family mem- family member or good Samaritan like threw a gift through the window? I don't get it. That is um, yeah, that, that is a, a a cinema sin style plot hole that I've wondered about a lot. It's it's just uh, it's myself. just a part of the lore that I wish was explored more. Um, well, I think the tree like the tree makes that even more uh, pronounced. Um, I was thinking about this, and it seems like. Maybe the reason they switched from uh, Santa bringing the whole tree and the presents in the popular lore to Santa just bringing the presents is that it's a lot easier to just put presents under a tree late one night than to put a whole tree yeah. up and presents. That's very true. Um, it's a lot more of a, of a, a logistical issue <laughs> uh, to put up a tree um, on de- on, uh, after midnight on December 24th. Yeah. Uh, for the parents, um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but this is a Santa free, a a, a, a Santa truther podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We're, uh, the it, your parent is Santa. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, within the fiction of this story, Santa is real and only brings gifts to privileged children, which I think is yeah, it's really a you know a, a mark against this version of Santa. For sure. Yeah, I like your angle though. I think that the social commentary aspect of it is cool. Um, I, we've seen that a couple times from Porter movies, where he'll sort of like yeah. he will kind of stumble into these really kind of smart class commentary themes. Yeah. Um, there was the ex convict, which I thought was was mm-hmm. did a really good job with that. Um, but yeah, I feel like the majority of Porter's movies are both boring poorly edited and also oftentimes uh gross in various ways um <laughs> but i I, <sighs> I did like the santa claus one i thought it was uh ab- above his normal maybe it's maybe it's it's uh it's dolly that sort of brings the i'm always <laughs> i'm always trying to deflect credit away from him <laughs> i'm just i mean I'm, the the link between the uh uh subversive darkness of both of these two movies is Edwin S. Porter. True. Um, and, uh, I, I think we can give him credit for that. Yeah. I think, I think the gun was probably Porter's. Idea. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it, yeah. Jay Searle Dolly was like, we're going to make this story about like a, a rich kid convincing Santa Claus, to, like bring presents to his, his poor friend. And then Porter came in and he's like, and then he holds him up at gunpoint and ties him up. And then it's going to be, 
Yeah, I think that was all. He's just constantly trying to recreate great train robbery. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, <laughs> he's like, how can we, how can we have a robbery involved? <laughs> he's always living in the shadow of great train robbery, <laughs> even in his Christmas movies. <laughs> uh, I love that. I love that narrative. It's and it's honestly probably not that far off from the truth. Yeah. Who can? Who knows? Unfortunately, we're 113 uh, years away from from knowing that That's personally. That. Um, two movies that I think I think are worth mentioning. Um, honorable mentions. Honorable mentions because of their historical significance are um, the Prodigal Son, uh, directed by Michel mm-hmm. Carré, uh, which is a lost film. I think I couldn't find any. I couldn't find it. Anywhere. It seems mostly lost, yeah. Um, but it was the first European feature film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was ninety minutes, uh, but it was a. It was just a. It was a, a filmed stage play. Um, yeah. So it, it only kind of counts. Um. But it's still. It's a step up from the the boxing matches. Uh, yeah. Step in the right direction towards feature films. And it's going to be another six years before there's an American feature film. Yeah. Um, though we're, we're going to start to see, I think, some more European ones pretty soon. Hmm. Um, the other one is uh, an American movie. Uh, the first adaptation of Ben-Hur, which was, uh, mm-hmm. which was a novel. Um, and is significant. It was directed by Sidney Alcott, who I'm pretty sure is going to go on to direct more things, significant things. Um, but it's, it's most notable for kind of setting the legal precedent for, um, requiring, uh, permission to adapt material to film because this was an adaptation of a a very loose adaptation of the novel Ben-Hur, um, made without any sort of permission from the author and they made the movie and the, the author or the uh, off the publishing company sued the production company because they were like, Hey, you can't just make a movie of our book and not tell anybody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it did, I think the, the ruling didn't actually like kind of go into effect until 1911. That's when sort of the rule became law in the United States that you had to get, you had to pay for f- film rights. Yeah. Um, but we have this movie to thank for that or to blame for it, depending on your viewpoint. <laughs> um, the actual, I say mo- blame. the actual movie itself is nothing really that special. I mean, there's like the super famous, I think 1950s Ben Hur movie with like a crazy chariot race and all this stuff. This one does not really mm-hmm. have a lot of that spectacle. Uh, it has a chariot race, but it's not covered very well. It's just, you don't even get a very good look at it. Um, it's mostly just Romans running around starting shit as Romans tend to, tend to do. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think it's about it. Yeah, that's it for me too. Um, I promise we'll make these episodes less long when we get to longer movies. Well, we're, yeah, we, we can't afford to watch as many at that point. We're, we're going to have to start yeah. whittling it down to just the, the essentials. The bare essentials. Mm, indeed. Anyway. Uh, on that note. 
on that on that note, uh, that's about it. Uh, you can follow our. We have links in the description where you can follow all of our whatnots, our YouTube, which I heartily recommend you watch this upon, and um, uh, I don't know Facebook, whatever. Uh, is is there a Facebook? I think I made one. Oh, cool, but you know, like us on but, like us on Facebook. Quote, like, unquote, us on Facebook. Uh, And, of course, uh, I have made a Google form where you can send us recommendations for movies to watch. Yeah, yeah. That's also linked in the uh, description. So, Oh, a little, uh, I want to do a a shout out, actually. Shout out? I didn't even know about the the movie. Gonna listen to some plugs. (laughs) No, stop. We don't want to get sued by Earwolf. Oh yeah, um, it's not like we don't already use a bunch of copyrighted music. In. <laughs> um, I didn't know about the movie The College Chums or its cool visual depiction of a phone call, but I found out about it because uh, of a Twitter account, Silent Movie Gifts, which posts gifts from oh. old silent movies, um, and is is a great resource for like finding cool old films and like little bits of film trivia and such did you find that a long time ago and um... no it was actually this week oh, wow. um, and it just it just happened to i just happened to come across it that's awesome yeah um that was uh so we have no affiliation that's... with silent movie gifts but also uh subscribe to them because it's cool i am following them right now look at that little metropolis maria (laughs) um well and with that uh glenn uh i suppose i'll see you next year great oh like in real life too oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) i thought that's where you're going with that but no i just figured that's you know it's a good it is a good sign right all right see you next year see you next year The Peking to Paris automobile race commences. The winner, Italian spe- sp- Oh boy. Spaghetti Bolognese. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I really want to say that. Oh, <laughs>